for the dates for each week and so on? The ch what chapters for what week? Did that get printed up? I sent to Joe last week. Did Joe not get the... Okay, I didn't send it. Um, well, does everyone understand that we're dealing with the printed book and then the Xerox book? Printed is the third edition, the Xerox book is the fourth. Chapters uh, 1, 2, 3, and 6 are the same in both editions. And so since tonight we're dealing through chapter 2, and next week we're dealing with chapter 3, you're safe for one cycle. Um, the, the, the content isn't different, but the presentation is better in chapter 4. As I expressed to you in the email that I sent that many of you got, um, Swami himself said that when he had the leisure to really look at the book, he just thought it could be said better. And since it's not... Uh, as he put it, it's kind of heavy going. He thought if it was more fun to read, people would be more inclined to read it. It's one of his principles of writing, is to get a little more fun. Okay, so, um, do we have any general questions or questions even about what we've already read? Yes, Rick? Well, the availability of the Xerox copies for No, they're in the teaching center already, yeah. So it's, and they're very nice, so you can get them easily. Okay. Um, this book of Swamiji's, he, he doesn't, I don't think he actually explains it in the preface anymore. At one point it was in the preface, but it, he, he, in one of the early editions he told this. Um, I think it might have been Richard Salva, but somebody from Book Buyers, I think, sent Swamiji the copy of a book that was called Books That Changed the World, or something like that. He, he refers to it in chapter one. He, he just makes references, so-and-so says in this book, Books That Changed the World. And uh, they just thought that... Uh, Swami, would you just be interested in it? And he read through it, and he really was struck by the collection of essays by each of these different individuals, or about them. I don't really know what the book itself was. Because he realized it really did describe sort of the um, progress, you could either call it the progress into our present state, or the progressive deterioration into our present state, of sort of... Um, what you might call cultural attitudes that mold our thinking in the West. And Swamiji, after reading that, had, had two thoughts um, that bo both were interesting. One was that even for devotees, we're very often um, captured by cultural assumptions like fish swimming in water that we don't even know form the biases of the way that we view the world. And as we endeavor to uh, re-educate ourselves towards self-realization, sometimes we don't exactly know what ignorances we're working with because we don't know their ignorances, we just think they're facts. We face this in a peculiar sense in our elementary school because our elementary school is not parochial in that we're not in, indoctrinating them. Our goal is not to indoctrinating them, indoctrinate them so that they'll come out to be little self-realizationists of Ananda Although, if they all grew up and decided that the search for God was everything and had the karma to drop it all and go live in the Himalayas, we wouldn't necessarily complain. But that isn't like our... We don't limit our goal to that. In this sense, I'm reminded of a young woman, a child who, who was part of Ananda. And she became very enamored of St. Bernadette of Lourdes and uh, the children of Fatima, who had visions of uh, Mother Mary... In fact, David and I visited some of those places and we came back, we showed, went to her house. She was just a child and we showed her slides and it was so exciting to her. 
Well, she worked it out and realized that pretty much everybody that she'd heard about who was a child who'd had a vision of Mother Mary was a shepherd. And so she developed the lifelong ambition to be a shepherd, <laughs> which had certain practical implications because there were many subjects in school that were not necessary. She already knew more than enough math to count the sheep. <laughs> it was very reasonable. She has uh, maintained her deep spirituality, although she's gone beyond her ambition to be a shepherd at this point in her life. Um, but in our situation with our school children, it's not parochial, but it is definitely spiritually based. It's really based on self-realization. And self-realization is not parochial. Uh, it's not ananda self-realization. That's the difference. But nonetheless, in the context of having are the teachers who are all part of ananda who have educated themselves in master's point of view, have certain concepts, for example, about world history. Because once you introduce the yugas, the idea of great cycles of time, in which circular cycles of time in which we're emerging from Kali Yuga coming into Dwapara Yuga, it has a very profound effect on how you teach a lot of history. Because you open these little history books and they talk about, you know, man was like this and he's gone in this progressive straight line for thousands upon thousands of years and now we've reached the apex of all development, which is us. And so history becomes somewhat problematic. Certainly the question of evolution becomes problematic. Many biological facts become problematic. Not all subjects really are a difficulty, but many really are. And we've had to just like try to figure out how can we uh, not uh, educate them in such a way that they can blend into the mass culture, but not just, we can't just stand there and lie to them. We can't just stand up and say things that we simply don't believe are true. Now, a lot of, I was saying we face that in a small issue because we have to conform to certain cultural assumptions. Well, what Swami does so interestingly in this book, and he, he outlines it for us completely, he warns us completely in the first chapter what he's going to do, he shows us sort of how we've moved from the kind of dogmatic theology that was represented by the Catholic Church, which was the only Western Church at, at that time, really, the only significant Western Church. I mean, others, I mean, the, the Jews existed and various other people existed, but all power has been concentrated in the Catholic Church was almost exclusively for centuries and centuries, especially in Europe before there was America, where even when you go now, one of the reasons that we changed our name from Ananda Church to Ananda Sangha, which is still sort of a confusing mishmash. We're just sometimes Ananda Church of Self-Realization when the mood strikes us, and sometimes we're Ananda Sangha meeting in the Self-Realization Mandir, if that's how we happen to feel. But one of the reasons we made that shift is because as our work began to develop in Europe, church was simply an impossible word. In, in, I mean, it's an English word to begin with, so you face that dilemma, but even if you just translate it into French or Italian, because the church is the Catholic Church. And also, it was just uh, beyond preposterous to our European friends that you had found a church. You know, this is a very American concept. You don't found churches. There simply is a church, the church. In fact, when we were buying this church from the Catholics, a group of Italian friends were visiting us as it happened, and they didn't, not all of them spoke English well, so we were dealing with translations. But they gradually cognized that we were having a discussion about the fact that we were about to buy a Catholic church. And they, there was there's all this whispered Italian conversation, great puzzlement, you know, you must have the translation wrong, in essence. And then, and then the spokesman, the commission spokesperson, asked for a clarification, and then there was more discussion. Because it just couldn't get their minds around it. 
Now, that's, that's important because even though we're not Europeans except by descent, I mean, not some of us are, some of us aren't, but um, that whole way of thinking is still part of our reality and the whole, the whole influence of institutionalism to determine reality because that's really what the Catholic Church represents. And Swamiji writes about this here, that the Catholic Church designated itself not merely as the arbiter of theological truth, but simply as the arbiter of truth, because theological truth was everything. And there's still, and this is just human nature, This it doesn't matter, it's the same in India, as Yogananda said, ignorance is pretty even 50-50 East and West. No one side or the other has a monopoly on it, they just color it in their own way. But many things are, entirely human nature. I love where Swami um, uses the phrase, how does he put it? He said that uh, the church didn't invent dogmatism, they merely just sort of institutionalized the natural human tendency to want to fix things in a certain way. And, and he, he, taught, he says it's so interesting. You know, one of the, one of the results of Swamiji's um, working on a book as long as he's worked on this one is that he distills things down into just single sentences. And in his editing process, in fact, he was reading us an example um, where he took a whole paragraph about the relationship of superstition and love and he just reduced it down to one sentence. And it was the whole thought was in the one sentence, but if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't know that. And, that, and so he, there's many sentences that are extremely uh, complicated in here. Not, they don't seem complicated, and that's the worst of it, because you don't really know it. I want to find this, so just a second. I think that must be talking about a later chapter. Sorry, I know all this turning of pages is going to end up on the tape recorder. Yeah, it's in chapter 2 that I was talking about, but I can skip to it. He said, what the church did primarily was empowers, empower people's natural resistance to change. <laughs> it's just such a marvelous phrase, isn't it? It just gave it the imprint of divine authority that now we can say this is the way things are and they can never change. Interestingly, and I don't want to diverge too much, but a friend of mine gave me a, a, a book that's a popular book. It's called The History of the Catholic Church. And it's, it's, un, it's not well written, but it's very interesting. It has too many words. <laughs> Someone uh, once accused Mozart of, of one of his pieces having too many notes. He didn't accept that. But I, sometimes you read books that have too many words. They should have pared it down. But this man was writing about, the, from, the, from a, a devout Catholic's point of view, but he was talking about how many times the absolute theology had shifted. And what was absolutely true from divine authority a few centuries later wasn't. And what was now true was absolutely true from divine authority, and then it would shift again. But fortunately, most people don't know history. And so you can just sort of... But th- that empowering people's natural resistance to change is a very um, a very strong and a very simple thought. So what Swamiji really wants to get, full, get across in this book, and, and this is in a sense... And this is why even if the subject matter of this book doesn't feel as much as devotional, for example, as the book we last did, or God Alone, or something like that, um, it's very, very important for, for us to understand this book for several reasons. Number one, we, we do live in this society and we are influenced by it. And if we read it very carefully and study it very carefully, we may realize that 
we are unreasonably prejudiced, we are, we are boxed into certain ideas that we think of as true, but are merely just the way we've grown accustomed to thinking because we're a product of our age. And secondarily, Swamiji feels, this is an extremely important book, and often he says, he often says, this is the most important book I've written, but he has said about this, because, let me think, think about how to say this, in the Bhagavad Gita, when the, the question is asked by Arjuna, about divine incarnations. In, in Christianity, you know, they never have to explain Jesus as a divine incarnation since he was the only one ever, or ever, ever, ever was, ever will be. It's just really simple. He was a miracle and that's that. The Indian tradition, of course, has a long tradition of divine incarnations coming and then coming again and coming again. So they've had to think more about what the dynamic of this is. So Arjuna asks Krishna the question in the Bhagavad Gita, and Krishna answers, whenever virtue declines and vice predominates, I, the infinite spirit, take human form to uh, de- defeat the adharmic forces and to reestablish virtue in the world. So what has happened now is there's been this new descent. You know, that light has descended anew. Every Sunday in our Festival of Light, we say the divine light has ascended anew in our line of masters. It's sort of a shift in the festival because first we're talking about how in very general terms the bird flies around and learns its lesson and the masters um, self are, are very uh, willing to sacrifice their own freedom in order to help us. But then we come to a new ray of light has descended through our line of masters. And you, you, it, it sweeps in the whole line. It's you know beginning uh, with Babaji and moving through to the present of, of, of Paramahansa Yogananda but it's because there was this call of aspiring love and it was necessary to bring this new ray. And so this new ray has come with a very specific message. And again, all of you, either within your own selves, because we all need to understand this more clearly, or I mean, I, I look around and I know I've had conversations with different ones of you saying, how do I explain what this path is about to the people who ask me? And not being able to explain it is also, I mean, you, you, when you finally know it, you can also explain it. But what, why, what is this path we're on? Well, this path is the descent of spirit because mankind is in trouble. The planet is in trouble again. You know, vice is predominating, virtue is declining. It doesn't really take an oracle to notice that. If you can read the newspapers for more than one day, you can find out that virtue is declining and vice is predominating. And it's just becoming the way things are. It's just the way, way people look at the world. And part of the virtue that's declining is hope. Part of the virtue that's declining is optimism and idealism and certainly devotion and uh, theism of any kind, any kind of a a sense of divinity. It's just becoming uh, unbearably materialistic and as a result people are becoming increasingly um, deranged and unhappy because there's absolutely nothing to hold them together. And yet, simultaneously, uh, a cry of, of a prayer of love went up from earth and God responded to the call of aspiring love. There's these, there are these two currents that are happening simultaneously, which is Kali Yuga in its death throes and Dwapara Yuga, Yuga in its birth throes, basically. And all of the different forces are incarnated on the planet at the same time. I think this would be an appropriate time to tell you one of the more interesting little bits of anecdotal things that Swamiji said many years ago. 
when he was talking about the planet at this time, and he talked about um, essentially four groups of people. Let's see, yeah, four groups of people uh, incarnated on this planet at the same time in the West, and how all those forces are playing together to both destroy Kali Yuga and create Dwapara Yuga all at the same time. And he said, on the one side, on the death of Kali Yuga side, which is the death of the materialistic age, which is what we see going on all around us, and also this frantic sort of like, you know, over-materialism, like they, materialism is slipping away, so we've just got to grab it and exaggerate it. And this is not going to be over tomorrow. I mean, this is going to go on for a long time. Um, you have, Swamiji said, you have the group of people who lived in Rome, who were the, just the completely debauched group that lived in Rome, and at the very end of that culture, when it just completely became so immoral and so over-sensual and so just deranged in that direction, and all those old Romans who brought that culture down, he said, and that's mostly the Hollywood set, the entertainment set, you know, the, 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 the celebrity set, you know, maybe the, even the actors and the, uh, a lot of the athletes and so on. But just these people who, who seem to have a completely different moral code than everyone else. It's just very, this very strange group of the, the super beautiful people, you know, wandering around just being deranged. And, and then you have another group helping to tear down Kali Yuga, which, I mean, this is just something Swami wrote in a letter once. And he said, these are the people who were part of the continent of Atlantis, which Atlantis fell apart at the apex of, uh, at, at the height the, the decline of the, of the Satya Yuga was beginning to come down the other side and the transition from Satya into Dwapar going down when, when the island of Atlantis sank, which Plato wrote about and, and Masser confirmed that all of, all of those things really happened. And the, the Atlanteans, the ones who helped destroy it, became so obsessively technological and sort of scientific and they, they were in such a competition with natural forces rather than in cooperation with them. And they were, they were mastering the planet with the power and will and you know, dynamic technology and so on. And they also became just perverse and deranged and created so much dissonance, which is a certain of what you see now, that they created natural cataclysms. And some people who talk about the future in, in terms of the decades here talk about natural cataclysms being created and Master himself said that natural cataclysms are created by, by mankind's wrong thinking. Bad, bad weather, earthquakes, you know, changing weather patterns, droughts. There's a very interesting article he talked once about. I wish I could find it. I'll have to look for it. He, he, he traced like famine, drought, pestilence, influenza, Wars. He sort of traced a circle around the planet. It was at one particular period of time how one thing caused another, caused another, caused another. When our friends were in, in, in Italy during the time that there was so much war in Yugoslavia, the weather in Italy, at least where they were, they were very close to Yugoslavia, was very strange. And they somehow felt that literally an ill wind was blowing from that dissonance. And there would be strange weather patterns and strange winds from that direction. Isn't that a, a strange thing? So that's all the people sort of making uh, the world go away. Then on the other side you have in America, and all of these forces are really called together by the divine. And that's part of what Swami's book wants to bring forward, is one of what's happened progressively 
and he traces in the first chapter, what's happened progressively is that God and even the idea of a divine force has just been moved farther and farther and farther out of the picture until we have no hope. That's exactly what it is. You know, we started with, as he says, with Copernicus unseating planet Earth, and then it just went from there one step after another until we became completely without hope. But anyway, um, the other two forces are uh, people who are Oriental, who are Indian primarily, from India, from India, who are Eastern in their thinking. In other words, who are part of the long tradition of the Indian culture, which has always understood that life is spiritual, that, that has that concept that we call Sanatan Dharma, which means eternal truth. That's not religion even. It's just simply, who am I? For what end was I made? And the, the, the perceived reality of divinity, that's what Sanatan Dharma is, and all the implications of that. And there's a, a massive group of people, which is really essentially us, whether you like curry or not. It doesn't really have anything to do with your sense of that culture, although many of us feel extremely at home in that culture because of that. But we all came here, and I think we came here a little, a, a little time ago, to sort of run a cycle of this making the East and West together. So to us, we discover Eastern teachings, and you know, somebody will say, but it's so foreign, and we'll say, what? You know, like, this is foreign, this is natural. <laughs> But the Sanatan Dharma is the natural part of it. It's not the curry and the saris and so on, but it's the, the sense of approaching life from this end just makes so much more sense than to approach it from the other. And so there's a whole mass of us in many areas who are, who are just shifting the West toward a more inwardly-oriented place. And then the fourth group is the American Indian tradition. And the American Indian tradition is the harmony with nature tradition. As, as very distinct from the Atlantean tradition. The Atlantean tradition is dominance over nature, the American Indian tradition, which is, you know, by the time uh, the Europeans arrived in America, the Indian people themselves described themselves as the last remnant of a great people. They all, all the Indian cultures, American Indian cultures, had traditions of when the people were numerous. And, and now they were just the last because they they were um, they were doomed. It was over. You know they were there. A few of them were left. Some of them had even degenerated from their high states because it was, of course, it had been Kali Yuga descending for a long time. And the American Indian culture, as such, was not destined for Dwapara Yuga. People have this great sense of tragedy about all these populations being wiped out. But, it, but if you stand back just a quarter of an inch and think about it, see, this is the problem of teaching world events from our perspective, <laughs> is that those cultures were Kali Yuga cultures and now it's Dwapara Yuga and something else is starting. And so they're all being wiped out everywhere. I mean, they're either extinct, like Polynesian culture, American Indian culture. I mean, you have tiny little pockets trying, but the lifestyle is extinct. Or they're just being absorbed into McDonald's and Burger King and uh, polyester shirts, you know, and, and rubber flip-flops. Tom Friedman says that the single most universal product on the planet is rubber flip-flops. <laughs> you find it everywhere. No matter how poor the culture is, you'll, you'll find rubber flip-flops, you know, those little things. Yeah, it's true if you think about it, those of you who've traveled. I don't know why, but that was, he makes the oddest observations. It's really fun. He said, actually, until the war with Yugoslavia when America bombed there, um, 
no two countries that both had McDonald's were ever at war with each other. <laughs> but now even that, acts, that uh, has disappeared. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? He writes the funniest books. He wrote this book called uh, The Lexus and the Olive Tree. And he's talking about how in some parts of the world they're still, they're still talking about the olive tree and in other parts of the world they're talking about the Lexus automobile. I mean, that's the essential theme. It's a very interesting book. It has too many words, too, but it's very good. It's very interesting. It's, it's called The Lexus and the Olive Tree. Friedman, I think, is it? Thomas Friedman. It's a good book. The reason it has too many words is he doesn't have any solutions. But, oh, is he good at describing the problems. They're fascinating the way he describes them. This is a much better book. <laughs> now, let me come back to this. Oh, the last thing about those four cultures, and it's very, I mean, this isn't, Swami hasn't written any of this in his book, but this is all part of what's behind what he's written. He said what's happening also is that the Indians of both types know that the Romans and the Atlanteans are here. And we, we see their role. I mean, I don't mean that we're all consciously kind of talking about or even calling ourselves Indians, but that whole faction can clearly see the other faction because it's so prominent because the other faction is the one that appears to have all the power. That faction can't see us. I mean, they may notice us a little because occasionally somebody will chain themselves to a tractor or something like that <laughs> or go up and live in a tree and refuse to come down. Things, so we get noticed, but they don't see us. They have no concept that we're really here. And the way Swami described it is when they finish their job of just destroying the whole thing, they'll be extremely shocked to see rising from the ashes this essentially fully intact culture, which is what we have created here. When that culture is really finished, then this one, it will be the the time for this one to come forward, and it's already established. And this is probably in the context, and I never exactly thought of it like this before, but Swami has often said, without wanting to overdo the point, because it's a point which could be so easily overdone, that time will show that Ananda is the most important thing going on right now. And he'll say that. And you feel a little bit like when Master first came to America and he was sitting in this little room in Boston, this sort of little furnished room, and it was so just small. And Master was there, and he had a couple of disciples. Dr. Lewis was one of them. And he would, Master would sit in this little bare, small room and say to, to Dr. Lewis, someday, you know, someday we'll be doing this, someday we'll be doing that. And they were both men in their 20s. Uh, Master wasn't... And he hadn't written autobiography and he wasn't wearing a little sign, Avatar, with an explanation. He was just being himself. I mean, the, most of the, the people did not know. In, I mean, he didn't write autobiography till the end of his life. He demanded that his disciples recognize him, not that he explained himself to them. And he didn't make it easy. You have to really cognize that. Even though autobiography was written, you still had to recognize him. And that's why... You would think, why didn't everybody in the whole world follow him? Because they couldn't see him. And people came to be his disciples and then left. They often left for other masters who they liked better. You, you know, you think of that as being incomprehensible, but not if you really put yourself into it. But Master would say about the future, and Dr. Lewis would just shake his head. He couldn't imagine it. Um, he was a, a Boston dentist. He wasn't an entrepreneur. He didn't exactly have the idea of how things are done. But Swami will say from time to time, and not often, and, and increasingly more lately, but he'll say that Ananda's really, he'll say, he'll say the most important thing, why should I tone it down? He doesn't tone it down. 
He said, it's the most important thing going on. And then I remember all these things that Swami said, that, that the other people have power. When Christ lived and was crucified, how many people noticed that that rabble-rouser was crucified? How many people had any idea that that one man among many who was crucified and put in that stone sepulcher, and then there was this rumor that something remarkable happened after that, who had any idea what, what the impact of that life really was? Now, if you really think about it, here we are, this place that we're sitting in is certainly the most prominent and perhaps the largest temple dedicated to Paramahansa Yogananda in the world. I say that with some question mark because I don't know how big SRF's new temple at Lake Shrine is. But this is more public. And I'm not trying to make a competition. Don't, don't misunderstand me on any level. I'm just saying, oh my gosh. And this is an avatar starting a whole mission and here we sit. And if you think of it like Christ's life and you realize it was a few you know, people meeting in the catacombs and then look what happened to it and here we sit, you could see that this could turn out to be really quite significant. Now Swamiji, that's what we have to be a little careful of having this conversation with people lately, careful in this respect, which is what we do will have much more impact than uh, it would if it was just if it wasn't such a public situation. Oh, we, we can't just decide to, let's have this ceremony, let's do that, let's change things this way, let's, I don't like this, let's do it that way, that sort of thing. We have to be much more conscious of the vibrations that we're putting forward. And the, again, you have to do this with a fine line, but you know, the, the sense of responsibility. Swamiji is exceedingly careful. As innovative as he is, he's exceedingly careful. He never does anything impulsively and he never does it without meditating very deeply to make sure that it has the right vibration. It doesn't have to have the same form because if you try to keep things the same in form, that's, that's the death of it, but it has the right vibration. So sometimes we try things and we say, whoops, that one didn't make it and we move back a little bit. Um, but the, the reason also why it's important is because we are doing communities. It's just as simple as that. We're the ones who are doing communities. And Master said... And again, you have to realize, Master said this, and he does not tell untruths. He said, cooperative communities, spiritually based cooperative communities, will be the, the lifestyle of the future. And that the day will come when this idea will spread like wildfire. Interestingly, the first thing that the Christians did in the time of Jesus was form themselves into communities. It's just a little here and there in the Bible. But they did make communities. The reason it didn't last is that these small communities... There was that battle between the Gnostics and the Catholic Church, between spirituality determined by institutional authority versus spirituality determined by individual inspiration. And little groups of small communities are uh, center everywhere. They're not a center here <laughs> coming down to you. And so the um, battle between the Gnostics and the institution, the institution won, and the Gnostics got kind of, got a very bad reputation and went away. And here we are again. We're doing it again. But this time, we have the benefit of being Kali Yuga ascending, Dwapara Yuga ascending. And so, Swamiji, this book is Hope for a Better World, The Small Community Solution. And I have to say myself, and this is why I love to teach these books, because when I teach them, I actually understand them. <laughs> when I just read them, I sort of understand them. 
But when I have to teach them, God tells me things that I don't know before and that sometimes I don't know afterwards either. But in that moment, I get it. <laughs> and I, I really, just even just this, this little bit of a chapter, especially this chapter two, the Copernicus chapter, him, him describing how, starting with Copernicus, he, he changed what is the center of reality. And, and the, the summary of that chapter, which um, it's just in simple English, but I, I was very struck by it, is that once we, we decided that God wasn't entirely just focused on mankind, which is what Copernicus taught us, we got farther and farther away from there being any center until we are where we are now, which in the moral condition of our culture is simply the fact that there is no, there's nothing to hang it on. It's, it's all just about if you can get away with it, it's fine. And, of course, people have a conscience, and, and intuitively and instinctively and experientially, people find out that it really doesn't work if I just go out as if there were no center to life, if there were no moral structure, if anything goes. I, I remember years ago, many years, like 30, when we were at Ananda Village, and it was the end of the 60s, the beginning of the 70s, and the sort of... Uh, the, the rigidity of, of uh, morality was just beginning to disintegrate with the hippies and uh, free love and uh, contraceptive pills and all of the different things that happened that just made uh, things possible that weren't possible before. And people, especially young people, were way out on the edges of just experimenting instead of living these very tightly controlled lives that just went down certain tracks. And someone asked Swamiji, what did he think about the sexual revolution? I mean, he's a... Uh, from a very orthodox tradition, there's there's nothing in the orthodox scriptures that just sort of jump on these bandwagons. In fact, Ananda has always been an anomaly. I remember again in the early years of Ananda, we were we were a very we were the spiritual community plunked down in the middle of Nevada County. That was our only community then. Nevada County was like the center of the back to the land, the whole movement, which we were also. It was such an important thing when it was happening, and it really was. People were, that was the American Indian element. It was all going back to the land, and it was living organically and having goats and no electricity. And it was a big, it was a very important movement to just repudiate the whole society. In the middle of it was Ananda, and this whole sort of counterculture of Nevada County, Ananda was there. And we, we looked a lot like what you would call the counterculture people because we all had lots of hair and we had just the same sort of look. But really, we weren't anything like them because we weren't counter-anything. We were Sanatana Dharma, which was not even new age. It was just ageless. But we looked a lot like them. But it was very confusing because we, we never actually lined up with them on almost any issue except perhaps a respect for nature because we were uh, into transcending this world and going into the spine. And they were much more into rebelling against this world and just doing whatever they wanted. It was a very... And, and one man, we had, a, we had just a lot of conflict up there, and one man who was very outspoken, I don't remember what we were doing. And they were also very anti-authority and anti-institution, and we were the, sort of the only thing that was even slightly organized in the area. We were the only target, so all that energy would direct at us. And Swami, because he just seemed to be an authority and we seemed to respect him, so all the energy would go at him. And one man, once downtown in Nevada City, just said to him, I, what I don't like about you talking to Swami, what I just don't like about you is that you're just so darn straight, is what he said. Because <laughs> he couldn't think how else to say it. 
But we weren't straight at all if you looked at us compared to the culture. We were way on the lunatic edge. Just completely fringy in terms of what the normal society was, but we aren't anything. We're just this, this other reality that's just moving through. But what, what Swami is describing in this book, and he's describing it so well, is that we are what happens if you really accept that self-realization is the goal of life. Swamiji described his mission in life once is to create a culture for self-realization. You have the principle of self-realization, and now he's creating a culture. What does it look like? How do you do business? How do you conduct marriage? How do you raise your children? How do you educate your children? You know, how do you do creative arts? How, what does the music sound like? What does the dance look like? What does the religion look like if self-realization is the key? And, and the essence of that, as he describes in this chapter 2, which we can go back and discuss in more detail, is the understanding that once every external concept of the center of the universe, and that's what Copernicus did, that the church was there sort of saying, you know, we are the God created this, this is here, and Copernicus started taking it apart. He just started saying that just mathematically it didn't add up. And everybody had just taken it as a fact because they were very materialistically oriented. It sort of seemed that way, so that's the way it was. So that's what Kali Yuga is about. Kali Yuga is about whatever you see with your senses is what's true. And whatever appears to be true is true. It's hard for us to think like that because now that it's Dwapara, there's all this other energy coming in and we think in terms of energy and consciousness. And, but, but that's the difference. Kali Yuga is all about form. Speaking of relationships and marriage and so on, which I spoke of earlier, what happened to marriage is that energy came in. It's what happens in our culture. All of a sudden people were more concerned about what was really going on than what it looked like. And for so long, they were just concerned with what it looked like. And so as long as it looked all right, that's what you did. And, and just the, the lifestyles that people just take so for granted. In my family, it was so interesting um, because you know our generation was the generation when it began to fall apart. My brother married, and then my brother got divorced. When my brother got divorced, soon after my uncle got divorced, it was sort of like once, once it entered the family through the lower generation... It sort of gave permission for uh, the other generation that it had been too frozen in the form. Suddenly the form just cracked a little bit somewhere close enough to home and then it began to crack somewhere else. And somehow it was, and it was, a, it was a, an absolute relationship too. It was just the cracking of that form. But we've only had thoughts, thoughts, and that's what Swami describes here, even talking about Malthus, Mathus whatever his name was, the one who talked about the population, how it just can't possibly work. It, it's all about systems and structures. And, and everything that people have been thinking and all concepts of community, and this is what Swami says, which are so interesting and it's true, all concepts to create a perfect society have always been about systems and structures. You know, Nazism, communism, so many different experiments. Almost every one that you read is Plato's system, which um, Swami talks about in more detail later in this book, I believe. I mean, it was just a ludicrous system. It had nothing to do with human nature and nothing to do with the way people actually lived and related. It, it just all was from form outward. And that's why, as he writes in here, there's this sort of this sense of discouragement because all of these different form, form outward experiments, they just never work. 
I love the way Swami describes it. It was such a subtle thought that, you know, people try to gain power. Kings, the role of kings is to conquer land and to gain dominion and have more power. And they, they try to come in from the outside and have power by imposing it upon others. He said, but the only way you can ever have power is if you win people to cooperate with you. Now, isn't that an interesting way to think about it? And I thought, that Swami just has described himself so perfectly. And that's where this book, which on one hand looks like it's about something unrelated to us, I mean, I don't just mean Ananda, but unrelated to our personal lives, but how many times in our lives have we tried to gain power over a situation by using force to gain mastery over it? I mean, whatever it might be, even if it's just ourselves, instead of understanding that we'll never have power as long as it's imposed from the outside. And that's even, see, and that's also, that's the whole path of self-realization. We don't just try to say, you will do this. I joke, I've joked at different times, sometimes when attendance seems a little low to me, I think, well, I've just got to sort of up the ante on the guilt. Because, you know, a little more guilt, maybe people would cooperate a little more. It's worked for a lot of institutions for years and years. You know, people are afraid not to do it. And it gives you the illusion of power. But that's not real power, because it's just as long as you can hold that, and it's always waiting to rebel. And Swami just describes the way you really gain power is when you win people to your cause, when you change their consciousness, and you all get on the same wavelength. Think about Ananda. That's how Ananda works entirely. It's very confusing for people. Sometimes, and actually, I often say to people, it's just more subtle than you think you're going to have to wait a while. Somebody will be like so-and-so will be misbehaving and doing something that's, you know, perhaps really not desirable. And can see that can, it's, it's quite common over the years that I've been at Ananda that people will have a very wide scope to act out their ignorance. You know, not merely a small little arena, but a large arena in which their misunderstandings of right behavior have enormous implications on many people's lives. And the natural inclination of everyone is somebody ought to do something, isn't it? Somebody ought to tell them. But if you start sort of working backwards, there's always, I've always found it, Ananda, it's always a very complicated web of individuals respecting individuals, respecting individuals, and just having to wait until people's consciousness changes. Because you won't accomplish anything just by free, pushing them into some form. And so, but it's a peculiar thing because at the same time it is, there is a lot happening to pull it into order. Does that make sense? So Amiji himself, when he wrote his book on leadership, I think, it was very interesting what he wrote because he said when he lived with Master at Mount Washington, and Master founded Mount Washington in the 20s, and Kriyananda came in 1948. The monks, you know, the monastic order, the heart of what he was doing there, had never been organized. Now, you, you know, our very concept of monks is, this is the rule, this is the hours, this is what we do, this is what we wear. And you look now at SRF, and that's what they look like. They all have the same outfits, everything's all sort of like that. So when we said he arrived in 1948, it was totally not organized. They didn't even have daily meditations. They just came, they declared themselves monks, and that was it. They did what they did. And Yogananda asked Kriyananda to be in charge of the monks, which was a little awkward. He was 22. He was a complete neophyte. Many of the men had been there for years. Many of them just hated him. 
you know, who are you, pipsqueak, to be doing this? And so he tried to, you know, gradually bring it into order. And, and the whole structure of Mount Washington was very apparently disorganized. And it was sort of a, a bone of contention among people. We've got to get this place organized. And he, and he tells the story in the path of uh, him, himself getting caught up with a bunch of people who are on a crusade to get Mount Washington organized. And there was a committee and it was going to get Mount Washington organized. And he took up the cause of the committee and went and spoke to one of the elder nuns about what she should do and how she was thwarting the committee and so on like that. And then Master just called him out and said, you know, you young hothead, how dare you go in there and speak like that? And then he excoriated Kriyananda for the whole committee, of which Kriyananda had very little to do. It was one of those discipleship moments in which he just had to take it because his guru was giving it to him. And then later they sort of worked it out. But, but Kriyananda knew that he'd gotten caught up in this critical thought, you know, Yogananda's not doing it right. But nonetheless, Kriyananda had always had in his mind that, that, that Yogananda Master did not really organize that well, so to speak. Sister Gyanamata herself said, you'll never get this place organized as long as he's alive. But then, when Swami was working on that book on leadership, and he was meditating on it more deeply, he realized that Master had organized it masterfully. But it was entirely organized by magnetism, not by form. And the magnetism was the consciousness that he was emanating, the example that he was setting, the vibrations that he was putting out, the vibrations that were put out by those who were in tune. And it was as, as tangible to those who could feel it as if it had all been written out and cast in concrete. In fact, more so, because it was centered in every single individual. And that's, you see, that's exactly what Swami writes. The center of the perception of how it should be organized and how they should move, how it should be organized, meaning what each individual should do in the context of it to move it forward, was not centered in somebody else telling them or somebody else defining them. It was centered entirely in the individual perceiving it and following it from their center. You see how, how extraordinarily Dwapara Yuga that is. And, and Master knew, and Swamiji said, Master interrupted any structure that you set in place. Because Master knew that any imposed structure, even though he let Swami finally begin to organize it, but, but, too, and he, but he, said to, uh, he said to Swami, don't make too many rules, it destroys the spirit. Destroying the spirit means it becomes external. It's no longer organized from the center. And so Ananda itself is really very exact. And we actually did finally write it down. Swami wrote it down about 15 or so years after we got to it. But there's a, we have a book called Ananda Rules of Conduct for Members. Um, there's hardly a rule in that. I'm not sure there is one. I have to look more carefully. Everything in there is about having the right consciousness. And then there are a few suggestions, you know, major decisions you should consult and a few things like that. But it's so far from actually being rules that it's really perhaps not the rules is perhaps not even the right word because it's get the right consciousness and then you'll be organizing from your own center. And that's why we end up trying to talk about what you have to talk about being in tune. And that's why when Master was alive, Swamiji said, he talked to the public about many things. But to the disciples, he always talked about attunement. 
And he would, he even said, so-and-so left the path. But he wouldn't have had, it, that wouldn't have happened if he had stayed in tune. In other words, if he had kept his, his I, I keep on to use the word organized. By that I mean, you, you know, you move through life with a certain pattern. We have a certain direction in how we move through life. And, and that's how we've organized our life, whether we're, we have a day planner or we have chaos in our home or not. Nonetheless, there's a, a way in which we organize our life. I realized it, oh, this is a, a very small example, but perhaps not so small. Um, I learned to cook in the context of Ananda, and I learned to cook in the context also of cooking for Swami Kriyananda, either through big public events, and then eventually I also cooked for him personally, or I would cook for him when he would have dinner parties and things like that. I wasn't the only one, but I was one of them. And so I essentially learned to cook by learning to cook what he considered to be good. And, and I, it, was, it looked sort of random, but I gradually was, it was very exact. I was just sort of in tune with his concept. And it wasn't in, an entirely personal concept, although beets, for example, did not figure prominently in any of the menus. <laughs> but it was just more a way of doing it that was just entirely defined by what was communicated uh, from him to me. And, and it wasn't written down or spoken or anything. In fact, I was very confused at first, but then by, by getting in tune with that, I organized myself from the center. And so very often you can't tell people what to do with Ananda. You just have to try to... to and you can't, you can't be told either. You have to just put yourself in places where you'll feel the vibration and become receptive to it. And that's why in the, in the, the Bible and in the festival of every week, to all those who received him. I mean, that's why we say that every week. Because to all those who received him, because if you receive it, then the power comes into you. And it's, it, it's mysterious, and it's way beyond my capacity even to imagine, much less to explain, what that really means to receive that power. But a high truth also has a lower form. Everything that's true on the highest level can also be explained way low. To receive it, you receive the plan. And that's why even Yogananda himself said, the blueprint is in the ether. And you tune into it, and then you do it from your center. That's all what chapter 2 is about. And, and one of the reasons why people don't get that anymore is all the things that he described. Copernicus unseated it. I mean, he describes it in the first chapter where he just sort of goes through the progression of how it just got worse and worse. And we got more and more externally mechanistic about what we were doing. Until now, it started to reverse through science when they start talking about the atoms and every atom is its whole universe and just, just the way he talks about it, it's beginning to move back around because Dwapara Yuga is coming. But, but a lot of our own thinking, we, we come to this whole sense of self-realization and then we want it uh, to, to make us comfortable <laughs> by being you know, real rigid. Or we play with ourselves that way. We just try to uh, take away from it its very essence which is that it's center everywhere. And, and primarily it's centered in the consciousness of each one of us. Isn't that interesting? Okay, let's take a little break. Okay. okay. Are there any questions or comments? Please. <laughs> oh dear. Thank you, Steve. You have to bring... This is a total... Oh. Go ahead, Steve. Mine is, I was about to say, total idle curiosity. I was just wondering if anybody know, know what 
Copernicus, what he, what the implications of his findings. I mean, was was he? I mean, he could find this out, you know, that this Earth was not the center of the universe. Yet that doesn't necessarily mean he would draw conclusions about the importance of humanity, God's place. In the whole you, you're I'm skipping. You're skipping too far ahead. You know, you have to realize that things move just a little bit at a time. But Copernicus knew how revolutionary it was because it said, Swami writes, that he spent, he, he didn't reveal his findings for many, many years. And he had, had to be absolutely certain because, you know, it's, it, I mean, I, I personally have, I do not have, a, a, I'm educated through Ananda, but I don't have, I have very little formal education beyond high school and I, I'm not widely read or anything like that. But, uh, so I don't know history. It, when, when, when we used to really be educated, <laughs> people would understand these things, but what we don't also don't understand is the, the, how slow the progression of ideas is. And that, Swami does talk about this. He talks about how, how, how steadfast people are in the reality as they know it. And that, that, that was a very important groundwork that Swami's writing here. The reason he starts with so much about dogmatism and, and trying to hold it and people's natural resistance to change is because he's trying to soften us up for the rest of the book, for one thing, because right now we're talking about Copernicus. Oh, isn't that quaint? You know, they, used to, they didn't know the basic facts of astronomy, the poor dodos. <clears throat> but he's softening us up for when he gets to Marx and Freud and Darwin, in which we say, but this is the way things are, you know, where we're just as rigid and foolish. He's trying to get us to see how arbitrary these systems are and that they don't really hold up to close scrutiny. They're just the popular song of the hour that everybody's singing. And um, I, re I remember a cartoon that amused me. Of, uh, was from the New Yorker, and it's a picture of a, it was a picture of a street in New York, a very you know cartoonish street. And everybody in the street has has paused in the midst of their everyday activities. There's a street sweeper who is leaning on his broom. There's a, child, there's a mother and child, and the mother is looking up wistfully. There's a cab driver who's sort of staring out the window, and everybody looks like they're pausing and contemplating. And underneath the caption is a quote from Albert Einstein, which I'll paraphrase because I don't remember. He said, um, it will naturally take mankind some time to get accustomed to an energy concept of the universe. <laughs> and you see all of these people becoming, trying to become accustomed to an energy concept of the universe, right? <laughs> but it's true. We have gradually, but still not. We still... See, now people are writing... Uh, although I, I saw that, you know, minute millionaire and things like that, that you are what you think and power of positive thinking and even books like that. But people really trying to describe, look, if you get your, your thoughts, your thoughts are energy, if you get your consciousness right, if you get your attitudes correct. I mean, some of this stuff is uh, cheesy and not really true. But nonetheless, they're trying to uh, get you used get you accustomed to an energy concept of the universe. And, and it's all around us. Everybody, m most people can comment on it now. But we don't actually, for the most part, we don't function as if that were true. Only a few people function as if it were true. Swami Kriyananda, for example, Paramhansa Yogananda, for example, functioned in the world as if energy, they do function with the understanding that energy is more real than matter. And that thought 
is the first, fourth, whatever book we did at some point when we were talking about the, oh, it was the book on how to be a channel, which was, that book is a sleeper in terms of how deep the teaching in that book actually is, even though it seems simple, about how the causal level is the beginning point. And that whatever you're doing here, that's where it starts. And the, the higher up you go on the, the chain of creation, and the more powerfully you go up, not just sort of randomly. I saw, for example, at East West, a book that I know is extremely well intended. It's, it's a, a, a partnership of two men, and one illustrates and one writes, and it's for children. And it's basically trying to get them to understand the idea of visualizing what they want and thinking positively. But it's really a terrible book, I have to say, because it basically says, have a good attitude, think about what you want, and that's all that's required. And you have pictures of children actually doing something. Yeah, but it's, it's like, it's just not true. And, and it's more than that, it's actually dangerous. Because then they'll just think, oh, I just have to think the right thing, you know. I mean, I thought of all the poor kids who were caught in divorces, and now they just think about mommy and daddy together. And, you know, it, it not only will, will not manifest like that, but it will sour them on the whole concept. And, and I'm sure the people writing it, I mean, they had nice faces. They have children of their own. They, they mean perfectly well. Where did this come from? What was I talking about? But, uh, oh, energy, about energy. But, but you have to, you can't just kind of randomly act as if you're acting from the causal plane. You have to get it crystal clear and then bring it all the way down. And, I mean, Swami has rewritten this book four times in one year. <laughs> because it wasn't good enough and he just kept at it and kept at it and kept at it. I mean, that's what it's about. And, and to bring it down from the causal plane takes that much energy. And it, took him, it took him four times to get it, to get the book that, was, that existed up there. And this fourth time, that's why he calls it the definitive edition. He's finally gotten it. And uh, so it's a, it's a very interesting thing. Now, wherever we were. What was your question, Steve? Well, I'm curious. I was reading the book today, and I've, I've read, read it before, and I'm just trying to get a sense of where we are kind of right now, if we just have a snapshot in time, of certain forces that are moving through this society. There's, in fact, you allude to, to this sometimes when you talk. You talk about being part of a larger, or at least associated with a group, larger group of ministers yes. and, and religious people in the area. And there's kind of this underlying assumption that's very prevalent in this area that if you are a right-thinking person, you will naturally be against war, for peace, against the Republicans. You know, that, that whole sort of... <laughs> it, it's a very large dogma. For the homeless. Yes, it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a dogma in I mean, and of itself. I'm not against the homeless, but you understand no, what no, I mean. But, uh -huh. but it really, it says, and more than implies, that people who think, who are intelligent and, and right-thinking, have these beliefs, and they're all kind of lined up. It's the dogma. He refers to it true. He does. And yeah. it's not of the church. In fact, it's... Yeah. Even though these are religious people, it's, it's really more anti-church. Well, it's not... It's not it, it is secular. It's, it, there's a large segment of it that's secular, let's put it that way. And it's infiltrated a lot of the churches. Oh, you bet. Hold on a moment. We have a... We have to do this. <laughs> no, that's all right. We have to do this. I was going to say, remember how there's that story where Tommy said somebody, he asked Matt once how long he's been his disciple. 
when Swami heard that life reading and he heard, heard that he'd been exiled from the main society, that he'd gone off somewhere and gotten a small group of people around him, and he had tried to communicate his philosophy in music. Oh. And Swamiji thought, oh my God, how long have we been doing this? And do we never change, you know? <laughs> sort of half-joking, but yeah, it's a little scary, isn't it? Okay, where, oh, you were saying, where are we in this? Pull yeah. me in again. And, and another, you know, just kind of, uh-huh. where are we in this time? Because another part of it is that Master had very oh, yes, uh-huh. clear beliefs that he expressed. You can call them political, but for some people who come on this path, they're kind of shocked. Oh, I, I, don't, I try not to talk politics. I, I have to know people really well before I talk politics, because we don't fit. It, you, what you say is exactly right, and actually, see what you say is really, really helpful, because... That's exactly the kind of assumptions that we have to become conscious of. And, and I know over the many years when we have discussed many different issues, you know, but sometimes people's orientations remain the same. But Master, remember, Master said, I am a Republican. And I don't remember. Who, to whom did he say that? Who can remember? He did say that. In fact, he said this was in the 50s or the early, you know, the late 40s, but it was... He wasn't in favor of FDR, and he, and it was to some devotee who was very much of a Democrat. And twice, Master said, "I am a Republican." Yeah, and Master encouraged Truman to go. Not encouraged. Master put the thought into Truman's mind to go to the Korean War. I mean, that's not a pacifist action. So you just like you're you're neat. I mean, this is what Swami writes. You, you create a dogma in order to... You get a perspective, you try to make it clear, and then you define it exactly, and then later on you think that that's actually reality. He said it so well. You forget that you yourself created that to try to bring clarity at a certain moment to a certain reality. It is not reality. It's a definition you made. So we start a certain... Since you're talking politics, we start a certain down a certain line. Let's be generous. Let's take care of people. Let's help. You know, the government ought to. Somebody ought to do something. And so, war is you know beyond stupid. Somebody ought to do something. And then we just hold those. They become sentimental. We become sentimental about those in the sense that this is how I've always felt. This is what's right. This is the way to feel. And that's that's what that means in that sense. It's not like it's not sentimental and that we become nostalgic about the good old anti-Vietnam War days when we used to sit in, although a group of us were becoming nostalgic about that not too long ago. You were there? Yes. Anyway, um, <laughs> I found out some things about David I didn't know. He was some, in some pretty hot places at different points. But um, the, uh, it's, it, the sentiment of it is, this is the way I've always thought, so this is the way I'm going to keep on thinking rather than really stopping and asking yourself, where am I now and why am I here? And uh, the, the, the liberal political agenda, which the, with the pastors, with the local pastors, um, I finally actually found a way to say it because it became very difficult, very awkward for me, because the, the, the biggest energy in the local pastors association is very uh, social service oriented. It's partly just... In any organization, if a few people have a lot more energy than the others, or a lot more, then they will dominate. So it's not, I think it is a majority, but it's definitely the most energetic and vocal people. But largely, it's just the orientation. And it is, with all due respect, and I would never say it there, but it's exactly what we say in the Festival of Light. The noble taper of inner communion burns low. 
though still lit on lower altars of, of good works. And it's not that that's bad, it's just the noble taper of inner communion isn't burning so brightly. So now what we're left with is that we have to try to do good. So we have a lot of very sincere people trying to do good, and they're not thinking like we think about um, the, the, the caste system, and in that, I think all of you understand that I mean that, in the progression of consciousness through different stages, and the karmic necessity of living through certain things, and they're just not thinking about any of that. They just look at suffering people, and they're going to fix it. No, there's really nothing wrong with that. You know, it, it's bringing out of many people that I associate with, um, great dedication, service, generosity, concern for people. I finally found a way to answer it. I say, well, I guess I'm just more of a contemplative. Yeah. And that actually, you know, I found a vocabulary that wasn't about um, karma, which really wasn't probably a good place to go because it's too complex. I couldn't explain it. And then, But there are others. I'm not the only one. A few others have, have said things that indicate to me that they do, do. They also see it a little differently, and that's that's the, the tr- trend you have to buck. You just have to f- find a way to not denigrate what others are doing, but also not feel that you have to go along with it just because it's expected of you. You know, my politics are so much more Republican, and I don't. They're not even Republican. I, this is not my world. I just see the whole thing so differently that I haven't voted in years. I just can't. I just don't know where to go. I can't figure out what to do. Once, about ten years ago. There was some, and she was a woman, some candidate that I found so abhorrent, just so absolutely repellent to me. I don't remember her name. She did win, that I actually registered to vote to vote against her. And I just went and voted against her and then came out. <laughs> and she won, of course. I don't know why I disliked her so much, and thankfully I've forgotten her name. Um, but there it is. But yes, we're not of it. It's not us. What I wonder is, I know that we are in a transitional period, mm-hmm. and that and this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of it. It just strikes me as so curious because you talk about. Well, that's what you asked. Where are we in this yeah. cycle? I think where we are is. Let me think about this for a minute. I think that where we are in that respect, we're where we've always been, which is that everybody's living at a different level, and so I don't think that. I think that you know that desire to help others, but but if you look at it from the point of view of self-realization. They're vicious, strangely enough, because that the con- the concept of social service, not always, because Mother Teresa, of course, and people like her are different. Much of social service and political activism is vicious. And vicious is the second level of of evolution. I'm just saying. I know you know, but not everyone does. At which you have the belief that you can ease your suffering if you could just control the environment around you. And you begin to become creative and active and even selfless in in certain ways. But the underlying motivation is often that I would feel better if I could control the environment around me. These poor, suffering people, I must do something about it. And so I'm going to try to do something about them. And and it's often very disconcerting, even for devotees themselves, because as they move into the kshatriya level, where at the kshatriya level you begin to understand the only battle that's really happening is with me and my own consciousness. Even though you've had all these values about the environment and politics and the poor and this and this, you find yourself unable to carry it out. 
Or you, I've even met people who were afraid to get spiritual because all their political friends, when they got spiritual, stopped being political. And they feel like they betrayed the cause. But when you start, begin to understand as a kshatriya that I have to change my consciousness, that all this angst and anxiety that I'm feeling about everything I see is not really about what I see, it's about the way I'm responding to it. And so then you start changing your own consciousness and then you begin to think that maybe this planet is not just the result of human action. Maybe there's some other greater force at play and then you, you, you interact with the planet from a different perspective which often causes you to try to do different things. Like I often say to people, I am as much of a social activist as you will ever find anywhere. I am absolutely dedicated to creating change. But I just think that we start with consciousness. I'm, I'm not inspired to feed hungry people, even though I, I'm glad that somebody wants to, because they're just going to be hungry tomorrow. And what, what's making them hungry is consciousness. So if we work over here on consciousness, we're really working very directly with what's making them hungry. And if you want to feed them, then I'm just all for it. But I'm just not, I can't do that anymore. I just... I fed so many hungry people and they just got hungry again. And, I, I, and they, they just kept behaving in ways that was going to make them hungry again. Swami once said very quietly, he didn't say it very loudly, after we watched a beautiful documentary of Mother Teresa, who is not feeding the poor. Mother Teresa is doing what Christ asked her to do. She's not even a kshatriya, she's a Brahmin. She's just doing what God asked her to do. She doesn't really care if it's the hungry or the dying or the dead doesn't make any difference to her. She's just doing what Christ asked her to do. If he asked her to stop tomorrow, she will stop tomorrow and never think about them again. I mean, she has stopped altogether now. But when she was there, and people couldn't get that. When she would say that, they would just go blank. Because they just couldn't see what she was really doing. I am doing what Christ asked me to do. Zip. doesn't make any difference. And that's, that's the other way you go at it. And some clergy people do. They, they, are, they know they have a mission from God but they're not helping the homeless. They're following their mission from God. It's very, very, very different. So some are Vaishyas, some are Kshatriyas, some are Brahmins. Depends on who they are and what they're doing. You can generally tell by their level of anxiety. <laughs> Anger, peace. It's, it's, it's really pretty evident. And a lot of times you stop doing it because you find that you're just in knots all the time. You have to go be a Kshatriya. You have to get yourself unsnarled. But again, it's all in here. You have to come back to where is the center of it. This is not from the outside in. I had one more little idea, but I lost it. Okay. Does that, is that, does that answer it? The poor you, shall all, you, you will always have with you, too. Remember, Christ answered it then. This, this oil should have been sold. Um, Mary of Magdalene, you know, just poured all that oil off out on Jesus' feet and wiped it off with her hair. I mean, that was... And Judas says, well, you know, what an extravagant, foolish waste. You could have taken that and given it to the poor. Although, as they say, Judas didn't really care about the poor. But he, he also didn't understand that the poor you always have with you. This woman is giving her all to God, and this is how she understands. And that's why Jesus says, let it be. It's fine. She's doing exactly what she ought to be doing. And, 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 it's, and it's a very political situation, what he's really saying there. She spent all that money on devotion because it was inner communion for her. And yeah. it's really like any other aspect of life where those of us who feel that devotion simply express it and, and live that way. 
and that's that's all. That that vibration will be transmitted. Ultimately. Right, because it is the answer. And I mean, fortunately for us, we're in an ascending yuga. I don't think it's going to send all that fast, but I finally realized I thought it was going to send tomorrow. I kept waiting for it to get well. Recently, I've appreciated that I'll, I'm sure that I'll die before it gets good, and that's just fine. I'm very much more relaxed now. I was really quite tense for many years just waiting for it to get good, but it's not. It's going to take much longer, and even then, it's not going to be that good. So who cares? I mean, really, isn't it a dopey thought? But I, I've been holding it for years. Until Jyotish and Devi, quoting Swami Kriyananda from a book that I've read, said that Dwapara Yuga is one of the most insecure ages you can live in. Oh, wow, that's a different thought, isn't it? Because weapons of mass destruction can reach every corner of the earth, but consciousness is still a little gross. So as long as there, there's war all the way through Treta Yuga, it's not until Satya Yuga that war stops. And if you stop and just think about that for a minute, if the culture is stupid enough to make war, you're going to have a lot of trouble everywhere. It doesn't, I mean, for three of the four yugas, they're still making war. And it gets worse because they can blow everybody up. And do. So, folks, here we are. But what was it I read recently? Where did I read it? It must have been from Master. He said, yes, it was from Master. People, people are so afraid of accidents, but they don't realize that dead people don't have accidents. <laughs> Meaning, once you've happened, I mean, once you're, once you've had the accident, you know it's, it hasn't happened because it's over. You know, you you imagine it in a way that's different. <laughs> Does that make any sense? <laughs> it was such a funny phrase. I read it over and over, and he talked about you know being killed, like being afraid of crashing in the plane or the car. But if you are killed, it doesn't happen to you. You, you just before, just before. The death blow is struck, your soul exits, and you're not dead, and you don't have the accident. <laughs> because you would have to be there to have it. I loved it. <laughs> Can you follow it? <laughs> the master was so um, marvelous, you know, just so untempered in the way he said things. Oh, my, my. Okay, I think that's probably enough for tonight. <laughs> Okay, God bless you. So next week we read three or three and four? Just three, I think. We're reading...